I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the prophet Haggai. Now, if you're finding it on your phone, the search feature might help you, but if you're flipping your Bible, it's hard to find because it's just two short chapters. In the earlier service today, I panicked as I began my scripture reading because I realized I had moved my bookmark and I had to find Haggai in the amount of time that it took me to say Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Because Haggai is a minor prophet, not because he's unimportant, but just because he says what he has to say succinctly. He speaks the Word of God, and then God sends him on his way. And so we're spending these, this few weeks here this summer looking at the ministry of the prophet. We remember that he's speaking to a people who were taken out of the land because of their sin. They were exiled, and then they've been brought back with the command to rebuild God's temple, because the temple is the place of God's presence. The temple is the place where they will bring sacrifice, and yet the people are quickly discouraged. And so listen to the Word of God. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. I'm going to read Haggai chapter 2. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the Word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desired of all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Let me pray that God would apply his word into our lives, that we would be changed by the work of his spirit. Father, I pray for those that listen today to your word as it's been read, that have heard your truth as we have sung it. Lord, I pray that those who come with doubts would find your word to be true. Lord, that those that come with fear would find you to be the God of comfort. And Lord, for those of us who come trusting in your word, Lord, I pray that you would change us, that we would not be the same having heard your word, having gathered with your people in your presence, Lord, but that you would transform us. Where we are weak, may we see your strength. Lord, we come because of what you are doing for us through our Savior, Jesus. The promises that you give, we come in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great moments of my childhood church experience was the children's production of the story of Jonah and the whale. Now, it wasn't just the costumes and the singing. It was the appearance of the big fish in the production. 
at the, as the, as the, the, the climax, the, the giant fish came on the stage, and it was a bright pink, Pepto-Bismol pink whale. Now, honestly, I really don't remember much about it. I couldn't sing you any of the songs, but I remember the pink whale. And the whale lived on in other people's memories, too. Anytime anybody wanted to point back to the good old days, they would mention the whale. Remember when we did that, that children's musical production and Pepto the whale appeared? And, and the complaints were usually, usually more pointed than, than just that they wanted a pink whale. Often they would point back to a specific ministry, something that mattered to them in the past. They would say things like, do you remember when we, when we really cared about children's ministry here and the pink whale? Do you remember when we were serious about outreach at this church? Now, I, I don't know that people noticed the irony that they were talking about being serious and a pink whale. Maybe they were thinking of the ways in which they had seen God work in their own lives and thinking, well, the good old days, well, it's just not like that anymore. Now, maybe some of you have that sense, not for a, a pink whale, perhaps, but a ministry that was important to you, a time in your life where God worked, and you think, if only I could get back to that moment, because everything I have now just isn't the same. And maybe you're just looking back to those good old days when people could show up to church without looking like bank robbers and could offer a hug to one another. And so while some of what we long for in the good old days can be good, too often our memories are tainted by what really happened there. Too often we are ignoring what God is doing right now. Too often we've forgotten the promises that God has made to us. See, for the people at the time of Haggai, they were tempted to look back on a previous era of history and think, do you remember how good we had it then? And they have a point when they think back to the temple that Solomon had built, the grandeur and the greatness of the kingdom. They remember their sin, the exile, and so they wonder if they could get back to that former glory, if they could get back to the good old days. And so there seems to be so little hope for them in the present. And yet Haggai, while being honest about the past, gives us promises for this moment right now and points us to a future hope. I mean, Haggai is honest about the former glory. We're, 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 we're given in each of Haggai's uh, announcements, in each of his messages here, a specific date to uh, uh, not just a, during the reign of such and such a king, but to a specific month and day so that you can look back at, at chapter 2, verse 1 of Haggai and see that we're in the seventh month. Now, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you remember that we were last week in the sixth month. And so it's really just a handful of weeks from the time that people decided they were actually going to start rebuilding the temple to this moment, and yet they're already in despair. It might be that they see the enormous task in front of them, that the work of just clearing rubble has taken them longer than they thought, that when they look around and think, where are we going to find enough dressed stone to rebuild this temple? Or they just look at the enormity of the task and think, no matter how hard we work, we will never make it look as great as it did when Solomon first built it. And so they wonder about the former glory. 
And so God sends Haggai to bring a word of encouragement to them. But, but notice what Haggai does when he first arrives. He speaks, yes, to Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, remember, he is the great, 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 great grandson of David, the king to whom God had made a promise that his kingdom would last forever. He speaks to Joshua, who is the high priest, the one who is meant to bring sacrifices on behalf of God's people. He speaks to all of the people that are gathered. And he comes with questions. And they're not really very encouraging at first glance. He asks in verse 3, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? He's speaking of God's house, the temple. And he says, how many of you remember it? It's been more than 50 years. And so anybody who saw it in the former, yeah, in the former times in its former glory is now an old man. And, and remember, we, we know nothing about how old Haggai is. Maybe he saw it. Or maybe he's a young man who grew up here in the land. Or maybe he came back, was born in exile. And maybe there's no one who can remember it because that's the point of the question. Who, who here can even remember it? But then, but then he, he pushes them further with the questions, how does it look to you now? And he reaches the conclusion with the question at the end of verse 3, does it not seem to you like nothing? He's admitting that today is nothing like the good old days before the exile. Because when we face despair, we need an honest assessment of our current situation. How many of us are tempted or have heard words like this when, when things are terrible and tragic and you say, well, everything will be okay? You don't need to worry. It'll work out all right. When somebody comes to you with a cancer diagnosis and you say, oh, it'll be fine. What gives you the right to speak like that, to say that kind of thing? See, God is actually forcing his people here in Haggai chapter 2 to admit the hopelessness of their situation. The, the greatness of the, the temple before compared to the, the junk, the rubble you have now, what you have now is nothing compared to the former glory that was seen here before. See, the first step when we're in, when we're in difficult circumstances is to admit how bad things actually are. To be honest, to not try and paper over it with, with platitudes that say, oh, it'll be okay. No, this is nothing compared to what was here before. And yet, God turns us from looking at the despair in our lives and turns us back toward him. Because notice the, the turn from the questions in verse 3 to what God says in verse 4. He comes with the, but now. And he, he echoes this command, but now. He's offering present comfort, but now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. See, God turns us from the despair of our circumstances. Yes, he forces us to admit it's as bad as you thought. Actually, it's worse than you thought. The situation, it's, it, the, what, what you've built here is, is like nothing compared to what was here before. But he comes with this word, but now be strong. And at the end of verse 5, we see the command, do not fear. Not because you can handle the situation, but because God himself can handle the situation. Because God, we're told in verse 5, is the one who has covenanted, who has made a promise with his people when he brought them out of Egypt. It's a reminder of, of, of a thousand years before when God rescued his people when they were slaves in Egypt. And God, in the book of Exodus, brought them out. God made promises to them. And, and there's, a, there's a little detail. I, I, I skipped over it in verse 1. 
I told you that Haggai, he dates his prophecies not merely by the king in whose reign it happens, but down to the very day. And so we can, we can pull out a calendar, and we know what day this is. It's October 17th in the year 520 B.C. And when you pull out your calendar of Jewish festivals, we know that that's the penultimate day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And you need a little bit of Old Testament background here, but, but what happened during that festival? The people of God were told, don't sleep in your house tonight. Build a little tent, a little tabernacle, a little shelter, and sleep out under the stars. Because do you remember what I did for you? I rescued you from Egypt. Yes, I was bringing you into the promised land, but even in your rebellion against me, I stayed with you. I am the God who is with you. And so, so in this moment when the people have had to stop working for the, the joy of the festival, and yet they sleep under the stars and they begin to despair, God brings to them promises powerful statements, telling them, yes, to be strong, but not because of what they have done. It's not as if the Christian life or, or biblical faith is, is learning to ride a bicycle, where God gets us running and then, once we, and, and then just lets us go on our own. It's not that he offers us encouragement and says, oh, look, you've got this on your own. You don't need me anymore. No, God is always with us, always by our side. Look at, look at what, what, what the prophet says to us. Look back at verse 4. Be strong, all you people, declares the Lord, and work. Why? For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. Can you think of a more powerful statement ever spoken by one of the prophets? Why can you be strong? Not because you're strong in yourself, not because you can handle this, but because I am with you, declares Yahweh, the God who entered into covenant, the Lord Almighty, the, the God of angel armies, the Lord of hosts is the language there, the one who created the heavenly host and has armies at his disposal. This is the one who is with us. God makes the promise that just as he was with his people at the time of the Exodus, so he remains with them today. That God's spirit, verse 5, remains among his people. God has spoken, and he expects us to listen. In our despair, God steps in and says, Do not be afraid. Be strong, for I am with you. God expects us to actually listen and respond. And yet too many of us are, are tempted to say, Well, but it's pretty bad. I mean, like, look around at my circumstances. The city lays in ruins. My life feels like it's fallen apart. See, we're tempted toward despair because we will not listen to the truth. And, and, and maybe for some of you, that's, that's a, a, a broader strategy you've adopted in life. Where you walk in and you, you think, you know, particularly when it comes to religious beliefs, it bothers me when people say, this is what you need to believe. Maybe you're somebody who, who struggles to, to listen to what the Word of God says, and you think, you know what, it feels more open-minded to me to just remain agnostic, to not try and claim an answer, to, to say, you know what, I can't figure this out right now. And you're arrogant for telling me that you think you've figured it out. Yet the problem with that kind of approach, which, yes, initially seems pretty open-minded, is that once someone tells you the truth, then you're responsible for the truth. I mean, students, imagine taking a, a test, and you walk in and you say, yes, I know we were assigned chapter 3 for this test, but, you know, I just didn't want to have to learn that stuff, 
So I didn't read it. I didn't study it. I didn't even look at it. And so, teacher, you can't test me on chapter 3 because I don't want to know anything from chapter 3. Can you imagine trying to convince your teacher to let you pass that kind of test? No. Once you've been told the truth, you're responsible for the truth. And so to claim to be agnostic about religious claims only works if you haven't actually heard the truth. And yet, what what has God done? He has sent his prophets to speak to us. He has given us his truth. So once you have the truth, you can't claim ignorance as a defense. And it actually is, it's not open-minded to say, you know what, you know, I just don't want to tell people what to believe. I don't want to push it on people. That, that's not an open-minded approach. Because you're actually saying to God, God, listen, I hear what you're saying, but I know better than that, and I know that your way, you know, it's just, it's too narrow-minded. You actually end up, you, you thought you had this open-minded position, but it's really a narrow-minded and arrogant position. The very thing you don't want other people to do to claim some sort of truth, you're doing yourself, even in your agnosticism. It's because sometimes we use our unwillingness to reach a conclusion as a smokescreen to keep us from really listening. And so, do you hear what God is saying? God has stepped into history. He has sent his prophets. He is announcing truth to us. And if you've put your trust in God, then then this is a word of comfort for you. It means you are meant to, yes, be honest about the despair in your life, but then turn from that despair and listen to the word of God to hear what he says, that God's past promises remain true. But, But Haggai doesn't merely point us to the past to give us comfort for the present. He points us to the future to give us comfort for the present. He points us to a future hope. Now, maybe this is what we expect prophets to do. Often we just think prophets, they prophesy about the future. They tell us about something that hasn't happened yet that will happen. And yes, Haggai does that here, but often what a prophet does is just say, hey, remember what God has already done? But now he points us to this future hope. He doesn't stop with God's past and our present, but points us forward to what God will do. See, our current comfort rests upon, yes, what God has already done, but it rests upon what God will do for us. God's promises for the present are supported by his future promises. And so in verse 6, we read this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth. Now, we might wonder about the timeline. In a little while? In a little while, God's going to send his son to return, and we're going to see the cataclysmic unfolding of God's glorious plan in a little while? I mean, is God's watch broken? It's been 2,500 years since Isaiah said this. In a little while? And yeah, that's because you and I are, are running it all, according to our calendars, our perception of the length of time. And what, 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 what God is saying is the, the next thing that's going to happen is I'm going to intervene in your lives. I'm going to come to rescue you. I'm the God who is with you now. And so, so it's just a little while before the heavens and the earth are shaken. And so God shows us his power that will come. We see it in the fact that he says, in a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations will come. God is saying he has the power over all of creation. He has the power over every nation that has ever been raised up on the earth. God is the one who can shake the entire universe. And what he will do, he will bring the desired of the nations. 
All that the, 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 the nations of the world have to offer God will be used for God's power and glory. And, and you, you heard the, the power of God even as I read it. In the repetition of God's name, he is the Lord Almighty. And just so that we don't miss it, it's repeated again and again in this passage. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The, the glory of this house will be greater than the glory of the former house, declares the Lord Almighty. God's kingdom it encompasses everything in this world. See, the people worried, will this temple look like the, the one that Solomon had built? The temple that was lined with gold. And God says, all of the gold in the universe is mine. Everything is mine. Even the nations will show forth the glory of God. God will show his power, his majesty, his worth and wonder through what he will do. He says, I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. He repeats it in verse 9, showing that the, the good old days, it, it's, it's not that we look back and long for what once was, but we actually long for the, the glory of the coming day. That we don't merely reminisce about what God used to do, but we, we, we rejoice in what God will do. The God says in verse 9, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. Now, he's not talking about if you sent a, a reporter from Architectural Digest to compare the two buildings. Because from that standpoint, the, the former building that Solomon built probably is better. First, it's lined in gold, plus it has all the, the artifacts that you need. It has the Ark of God's Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And so if the, the architect walks through, he might say, you know what, I kind of I like the former one better. But what God is saying, no, the, the glory of what I will do is, is greater than what I have already done. Because the temple itself is meant to point us not merely to a physical building, but to the very presence of God. And we've seen in the prophecies of Haggai that God is promising to send his own son. Jesus, who in the Gospel of John will say that, that the temple of God is Jesus' own body. When he says, tear down this temple and I will raise it again in three days, he's not talking about the stones in front of him. He's talking about the sacrifice that he offers, his own life in the place of sinners. And then God raised him from the dead. And in the resurrection of Jesus, in the death of Jesus, we see the great and glorious power of God. We see God begin to shake the heavens and the earth. Yes, we're, we're longing for that day when Jesus' kingdom comes in its fullness, but we've seen it. We've seen it in what God has done in Jesus. In, in the Gospel of Matthew, there are a couple of, of times that Matthew points us to the, to the, the shaking of the earth. I mean, there are such insignificant details that we might just blow past them. We might be left wondering, wait, what's happening here? It happens at the death of Jesus in Matthew chapter 27. In verse 50, we read in Matthew 27 that when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Jesus, the Son of God, the great I Am, died in the place of sinners. And then Matthew gives us the background, what's happening around this moment. In Matthew 27, verse 51, we read, At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. At the death of Jesus, the earth shakes. God shows forth his power. Jesus has conquered the grave. And again, on the next uh, three days later, on the third day, when, when Mary Magdalene and the other Mary go to the tomb, on that day after the Sabbath, 
we, we jump forward to what happens at the empty tomb, but, but Matthew lets us linger. When Mary and the other Mary went to the tomb, we read in Matthew 28, there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. See, the earthquake is supernatural. Rolling the stone isn't enough to do that. God is saying everything changes in this moment. I am shaking the heavens and the earth. I am showing forth my glory and my majesty and my power. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. His kingdom will last forever. Jesus is the one who points us to the glory of God's coming kingdom. When in the kingdom of heaven, the book of Revelation tells us there will be no more temple. Why? Because God is right there in the midst of his people. God is with his people. And so those promises of what God will do in the future give us an anchor for the present. See, the person who is most confident in this life is the person who, who sees the promises of God and believes them to be true, who looks forward into the future and says, that is my God. That is what he will do. Yes, all around me is broken down and despair and decay. I don't know what step to take, but I know God's word remains true. God's promises are secure. In a little while, God is coming again. In a little while, King Jesus will return. In a little while, the earth will shake, the heavens break forth, and the king will be here, his kingdom in its fullness, in just a little while. See, if we live with confidence today, yes, it's based on what God has done in rescuing his people from slavery and sending his son to die for us and raising Jesus from the dead. But our, our confidence for today comes from the future as well, that the king is coming again in just a little while. Horatio Bonner, the saintly minister, the poet who gave us some of the hymns that, that we sing, he firmly believed in the return of Christ, in the imminent return, that it was going to happen soon. Maybe not in his lifetime. But he lived every day with confidence in the promises of God. And so we're told that every night as Pastor Bonner retired to his bed, the, the last thing he would do is he would, he would open his curtains. He would look up into the starry sky, and then he would say to himself, perhaps tonight, Lord. Perhaps tonight. Perhaps I will see the glory of Jesus, my King, today. Because those who live with confidence in God's future promises can have confidence right now. Living a life filled with joy and love and sacrifice and service. And, and you know the first thing Pastor Bonner would do every morning? He'd open the curtains. He'd look out at the rising sun and say, Perhaps today, Lord. Perhaps today. Let me pray that God would apply his word to our hearts. Father in heaven, I pray that you would make us a people who live lives of gospel boldness because of your promises. That we would rejoice in the fact that you sent your son to die in our place. That we would see the, the cataclysmic change that is brought by the death of our Savior. The forgiveness of sins offered to us. Lord, I pray for those that have listened today who don't have a knowledge of Jesus as Savior. Lord, that you would give them confidence in your word. Lord, I pray that you would let us see the great power that you have displayed in raising Jesus from the dead and let us cling 
to the promises of Scripture, that you are the God who loves us and cares for us, that you are the God who is coming again, that Jesus, our Savior, will appear. And so, Lord, let us live lives that are filled with, with joy, with gratitude, with boldness. Lord, turn us from despair. Let us be strong in you. Lord, turn us from our, our, our circumstances so that we will not fear. Lord, we come today praying in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.